Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. From Autosport.com and Autosport Magazine, I'm Martin Lee, and this is the Autosport Podcasts. Well, today we are celebrating many of Motorsport's wild and spectacular machines, just like our magazine did out last Thursday, still available, of course, to get right now. If you're not a subscriber, you can grab that off the shelves. We have selected some of the most outrageous and, in some cases, ridiculous cars ever to go into competition for our Monsters of Motorsport special. It's a look at some of the cars that can impress and entertain, even if they're going around a circuit or rally stage, pretty much all on their own. Now, loads of candidates for inclusion. We've largely focused on the cars that were both dramatic and successful. We cover Formula One, sports cars, off-road contests and tin tops. We've thrown some oddballs in there as well. And I'm joined on the podcast today by two experts who can tell us all about their favourite monsters of motorsport, plus a very special guest as well. Uh, Gary Watkins is our sports car expert. We are joined as well by Marcus Simmons, our deputy editor. And first of all, to talk about a monster of a pole lap at Le Mans, we are delighted to be joined by Mark Blundell. Welcome to the Autosport Podcast. Pleasure to be here virtually where are you joining us from today because i gather it's not the the minus temperatures of somewhere cold in the uk uh you can probably gather from the view behind me that there's some sunshine so yeah i'm in the, in the usa at the moment just uh enjoying a very brief bit of r so yeah oh lovely lovely well you're not missing much over here it's very cold gary we'll get to you first though because i'm sure that you've got some questions you want to ask mark about uh, first of all, I look, we, we've got to start with 1990 uh, Le Mans pole lap, surely, haven't we, we, Gary? Let's kick off there. It's just one of those amazing uh, laps that has gone down in history. But it, it sort of went down in history 
by sort of accident in a way, because um, Mark went out in his Nissan uh, for a pole shot in that sort of mad uh, half hour after the sort of uh, after the pits reopened on the old schedule of qualifying when it, the pits reopened at uh, uh, at 10 o'clock. This was all, all on the Thursday. So it's just a little bit of daylight. Temperatures, temperatures are cool. Perfect time to go for a lap. Mark goes out to do a lap, but something happened, which expla- at least partially explained why uh, the uh, margin after, <laughs> after you set that lap with you at the top of the time uh, sheets was six seconds, a tad over six seconds. So, Mark, you're you're in the car. You tell us what happened. It's always nice to have a chat about it. It was very easy. It was one of the situations where we've been trying to qualify that car all week long. You have to remember as well that that was a qualifying car that was brought to Le Mans just specially to do that outright lap. Big debate between the drivers and who was going to get that opportunity, which was settled over the toss of a coin, and I won. The frustrating part was every time we went out in the car during the course of that week, it never ran properly. And it kept overboosting, and it wouldn't perform. And because it was a Japanese manufacturer of Nissan, nobody wanted to uh, be in that situation where they'd fall on the sword, so to speak. So you know, they, they didn't run the car in case something drastic happened. But after a week of frustration and getting to what you just said, that twilight zone, you know, that perfect opportunity to go out when there's still a bit of daylight, but the track temperature's still up there to a certain degree, a bit of moisture in the air, so the engines breathe as efficiently as possible and all you're hoping for is that that clear lap which is always a difficult thing around them on we left pit lane and we went back out there and squeezing on the throttle pedal and information come across the airways in the, in the helmet like abort the lap abort the lap it's you know you're gonna have to bring it in as many people know and you know we've discussed it even ourselves you know i'd, I'd got to the stage of not really wanting to do that so i disconnected the radio um against team orders uh there's a little bit of conversation with dave price and uh i think you know between all of us on our side of the garage that being the sort of uk side the frustration was all coming out with all of us so that's what i did disconnected the radio carried on didn't hit the throttle pedal in anger until i left the last chicane to start the lap and uh that lap then was something that was probably for me probably one of the best laps i've ever done in a race car because it's the most natural and reactive lap in that what was coming at me i had no idea because we had no reference no data of anything else no understanding of what the car would do no understanding how much horsepower we we were going to achieve which was something bordering on up to 1100 horsepower um no one in the right mind actually i don't think actually knew the, the figures um and we had a car that, you know, when I when I hit that throttle pedal, it came off the corner like a rocket. And then I was still spinning the wheels in fourth gear before I entered the Dunlop chicane. Um, still say to this day that there was a second still in the lap if I've had qualifying tyres. Not temps, seconds. All but the one bit of traffic. I think it was one bit of traffic I encountered at the Porsche curves on the entry. You know, there was probably a little bit left on the table even there. So, yeah, good times. But a long time ago, Gary, long time ago. <laughs> And of course, you were on race tyres. And, and when we were speaking um, about this for the story in Autosport magazine uh, this week, you said that, well, had you been on qualifiers, 
you know, there was a lot more in the car, as, as you say. Of, obviously, you led off with the caveat that with 1,100 horsepower going through the rear tyres, they, they might not have lasted eight and a half miles of the circuit de la Salle. But clearly, you know, if you'd have had a proper go at it, you know, you'd understood what was coming. I mean, that it, would have, it could have been, you know, two or three or surely more seconds faster. Well, I think it, I think it could have been ten seconds because you know you know what Le Mans's like with the lap. There's so much distance to be covered. You only got to make those marginal gains that all of a sudden you know you'd clock up a second and you'd only be 25 percent around the circuit. So, but it was exactly what we're discussing. It was a situation of not having all of that data available. The car had never run in anger. We had no reference of tire data. We had no reference of handling. We had no reference of braking uh, distances. So we had to go out there with understanding that, you know, let's put the hardest tire on, hopefully knowing that they will last, but also at the same point, knowing that what we left on the table was a, a huge amount. But, but it didn't matter. The margin was so big. I mean, the job was done. So, um, you know, I do remember coming back to the pits and everybody was jumping up and down with excitement, but at the same time, I could see there's some really sort of uh, red faces, especially from the Japanese point of view. Coming back in and uh, gathering my thoughts was a little bit of intrepidation in some respects, because, you know, as a young guy in a, in a factory deal, I'd gone against team orders, but at the same time, we'd just done something quite special. We just put the first Japanese manufacturer on pole at Le Mans. I guess manufacturers don't like seeing their engines blow up. It's bad publicity. And, and perhaps we, we might say the, the Japanese manufacturers are most conservative in, in, in that respect. Although we shouldn't forget about Alfa Romeo Formula One engines uh, having problems in the, you know, in the late 70s and early 80s. And the reason for retirement being listed as um, electrical problem because the Conrod had come out the side and taken off the alternator, that kind of thing. But uh, I mean, when when you were doing doing that lap, was was there any fear there? Because you know, Le Mans was back thirty years ago. Was a very dangerous track. Uh, okay, it was the first year of the chicanes, of course. No, you know, uninterrupted four miles of the Mulsanne Strait. But did you, did you have any fear or? If, if you have fear you sh- in that situation, you shouldn't be a racing driver. No, there wasn't any fear. It was, um, it was, it was full focus on, on trying to understand corner by corner what was underneath me and trying to extract more from it from the next entry to the next corner and the next breaking point. Because, you know, as I said to you, at the end of it all, it was the most reactive lap I've ever done because we had zero information to understand what was underneath us. So... Dunlop chicane, if you, you can see the in-car video, I was completely sideways, completely crossed up opposite lock. And you have to remember then there's no traction control, there's no power steering. Uh, you're grabbing gears at the same time, trying to understand you know, what you can get, put some power down and get to the next gear with a the torque. Then Tert Rouge, and that got a handful, that got sideways. And then before you know it, we're touching 238 miles an hour on the Mulsanne with the chicanes. And I'm thinking to myself, where do I break? You know, I, I've never approached this this chicane at this speed before. No, and nobody else has at that point. <laughs> so um, it was all gut, instinctive, uh, seat of the pants stuff. And as that lap went on, the more confidence was building with me, and the more understanding I was getting, and the more uh, the more sort of approachable I found it to take. For example, you know, the Porsche curves was the big one that I was concerned about. 
it wasn't it wasn't fear it was just a concern of if you're going to throw a car in you know that's going to be one that's going to grab you and, and you've got those little adverse cambers and i was just unsure whether it was going to stick um and lo and behold we were okay but fundamentally the car is as we already probably know you know historically was a, an understeering car as well um we'd always troubled ourselves with that and we'd cut the vents in the front arches to try and alleviate some of that and that was that was the inherent issue with it and uh plowing sort of 1100 horsepower through the back wheels didn't really help that either so yeah it, it, it was a journey to say the least mark can i ask i'm interested in the psychology of, of elite sports people an article we did recently about fangio talking about when he talked about his greatest lap 1957 nurburgring and he says on that day i conquered it but on any other day it would have conquered me is there any resonance with you and that lap where it just all kind of happened where you know maybe talk about in people would know the phrase in in the zone where you were just kind of on this otherworldly different plane but on any other day or if your brain had kicked in it wouldn't have ended so well that's a big question when you when you throw out a name fangio in elite uh, in the same sentence and you're going to put me inside there that's a worry so i do believe that there are times when everything comes together and, and racing drivers are no different to anybody else in elite sport it's uh you know, when you're at one and, and things come naturally, you know, the, the, the subconscious side takes over quite quickly and easily. And before you know it, everything's done, it was very easy to achieve. And as much as I watch the in-car back now and again myself, and I can see that it's a huge amount of physical output, the, the mental side was such that I felt fully in control. And, and, it, and it was a, probably an air of youthful confidence, frustration that was coming out in like, I'm going to make this happen. But at the same time, proving a point because you know that was still the early days of my career and it was all about putting yourself in, in a position of trying to uh, elevate but it was probably one of the most enjoyable laps um because it was so natural and and so there is a point yeah that you are you're kind of at peace with everything and you just get on and get the job done would it have happened again if i'd have understood what was underneath me it there could have been a, a case of saying probably no if I'd have known what I actually had to achieve and the pressure would have built up and trying to push the lap, you know, with qualies on, with a reference of the car balance, with the braking points, maybe it had got too much for me and overpressured me and, you know, I'd have actually fumbled the lap, which we've seen time and time again with qualifying. Maybe in a way it, uh, it worked to my advantage. Obviously you went back, Mark, two years later, won the, won the race with Peugeot, sharing a 905 with Yannick Dalmas and Derek Warwick. If, if, I reckon if we ask most motor racing fans, they would say that you're more famous for the pole lap than you are for winning winning the race. Which I suppose the, my question is two part. Would you agree with that? And does it slightly rankle? I'm I'm happy to to take both. I don't mind. You know, I'm happy to have that lap under my belt, which is sort of in a motorsport fable you know and and i'm happy to be there on this on the winner's list of, of le mans one of the biggest races in the world and and to do it with yannick and derek as well derek very special because i looked up to him as a young driver and had a relationship with paul his brother so that was uh, quite special especially in a way as well because i had a hundred percent win record that year on the basis i only did one race um because <laughs> i was with Mac mclaren as a reserve driver for center and uh, for burger and we did le mans and won it so that was uh, quite nice no you know i think gary there's there's things through the years that you do as a driver and they stick out some of my best races i still say to this day are formula ford 1600 
and it doesn't really take any any other memories to sort of you know counterbalance that we're saying that the bigger or better there's some fantastic memories for me that will stick around from those years with some of the best guys that i've driven against and raced against so you know but Le Mans is special whatever way you want to look at it you know we're, we're all sitting on this call at the minute and we all have a, a passion for it and, and love that big event and there's no two ways about it to, to have it on a driver's cv is something quite special i mean we're talking about a turbocharged car here you know because the wastegate jammed that's why you had this 1100 uh horsepower 1148 i believe no sorry 1128 was what was put about at the time and that that was clearly a, a sort of a, a finger in the air calculation by someone because they could could never know would would you obviously when you got to formula one you you were driving normally aspirated cars would you have loved to have driven in the turbo era of formula one when you know they they had big horsepower as well yeah, I, I would have quite liked that. And I think, you know, some of the reasoning for that as well, which um, some people maybe uh, don't don't analyse and don't overlap as well at that point, is my style of driving was, it, and I'll give you a good comparison, my style of driving, actually, if you looked at a map, was exactly the same as the way that Senna used to drive. And I say that in the way of the way that he applied the throttle, because we would put the throttling in stages, and, and, you know, and you remember the, the turbo era of like bah, 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 building through the corner. That's exactly how I, I, I drove a race car, which for me, I think fundamentally came from my motocross days in the way that we used to apply power then. But and, and so my way of driving always promoted an understeering car because I would increase the power through the corner in steps. Whereas, you know, a lot of guys would go in and do that, you know, that V shape and turn the thing on a pivot. And then the rear would be the, the problem they would have. When I was testing, for example, at McLaren, that's when it first came to me of understanding where I was in my driving style. The car set up for me and Senna was exactly the same. The car set up for Berger was very different. He'd have it on the nose. He couldn't drive the car that we would drive. And we'd have the rear end doing the steering and we would just balance out the understeer and the front end off the corner just with throttle control. So as you'd come off the corner, you'd have a little bit of push you know, you just trim it and modulate in the throttle pedal and build it with those stages. And that worked quite well in the turbo era and definitely for me with the sports car stuff. And that was one of the ways I would minimize the understeer in the Nissan. Um, whereas, you know, Julian, for example, was a lot more of a V-shape. Julian Bailey, my teammate, would come in, pivot it, step on the throttle pedal, and he'd be like, you know, but you'd, you'd burn the rears up in a nanosecond and you, your fuel consumption was through the roof. So, yeah. So going back to the original question, yeah, there would have been a part of me that would have liked to have done that. Um, maybe the rawness of all that power and a little bit of, you know, big forearms and grabbing a handful of steering with no power steering would suit me fine. But those days are gone, aren't they? So it's not going to happen. Yeah. After Formula One, you, you went to kart. We might call it IndyCar now, whatever. I call it kart because that's what it was. Uh, you you had one of your big successes on the um, on a super speedway at Fontana where in your good year, when you won three races in uh, 97 with Pac West, I mean, is there any, is it, I, I guess racing, a, 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 a let's call it a generic, generically an Indy car racing that on a super speedway. It's a, this must be a very visceral experience, a bit like, a bit like the Le Mans pole app. Are there any similarities there? Oh, there's there's similarities for me in an achievement as a driver to go and, you know, win a 500-mile race. I think at the time I was the fourth British driver to win a 500-mile race. Um, 
I think it was Mansell, Clark Hill, those are the guys, and then, then, then I came along. i tell you what the special part of that was for me. I finished that race with blisters on my rear tyres, like the size of 50 pence pieces, and the risk that I took to go and win that, because ordinarily I would have come back to the pits and had a tyre change, because the tyres could have blown at any point. And, and I remember vividly that when the, uh, the yellow came out, and I had to make the choice, do I go for it to finish this race, the last few laps with tyres in that condition, and I could feel them with the vibration, and literally you could see in the mirror the big line on the rears just like developing where the blisters were expanding. It's like, that's what I'm here for. Well, we're going to do it. You know, I'm either going to end up on the wall or I'm going to end up crossing the line first. It slightly wrangles on me that the, the day that I won that, that race, which was the first 500-mile race at Fontana, so I think we still got our hands in a brass plaque or something in the floor with Jeff Gordon back out there, probably, probably built over by now. <laughs> that that race was small prize money because the following year they made it a million dollar prize money. Oh. So as per normal with my career, my timing sucks. <laughs> yeah. so, to win a 500 mile, to do it on an oval super speedway, you know, you have to think the speeds out there were incredible. We were, we were pushing 900 horsepower with those cars. The same thing, no traction control, no power steering. Uh, you're doing, I think we did 253 on the straight and 227 in the corners and you're doing two miles in 30 seconds with another 25 other guys around you and and i still say to this day you know until you've done an oval race until a driver has done something like that you know please don't make any comments to anybody else who's done it because you have no idea you know you 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 anyone who's done oval racing i have the utmost respect because it's a different discipline and you know it's it's something very unique and when you get it right it's one of the best things you'll ever achieve in a race car and the most satisfying and gratifying when it's bad it's the scariest ride of your life and i quite relate to people when they go i've had enough i don't want to do ovals anymore i've got it with mike conway you know mike i've managed for 17 years nearly now and we went through that with mike and i respect him no end for turning up and going and sitting in front of AJ Foyt and saying, AJ, I don't want to do ovals anymore. Probably the only guy who's ever done that with AJ Foyt. Uh, but I had to respect his decision because oval racing, I don't think you'll find anybody in pit lane that actually will turn around to you and say, oh, I love it. If they say that, I think they're lying because the, the risk element is so high. It's so tough. You could see the blisters on the tyre, you know, but just in your first year, you'd already broken your leg you'd already tasted concrete wall, if you like, in IndyCar. Yeah, I mean, that, 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 that accident is one of the big ones that's, you know, that's stuck around for years and years. And brake failure, 198 miles an hour impact into concrete, no tyres, no barriers, uh, 122G impact. Yeah, it, big. So, but that's racing drivers, Gary. At the end of the day, no one ever came along and hit you over the head and said, like, you must go and race a car. It's a choice. And, and it's that choice that you make every time you get in the cockpit of a race car. And the day that you don't want to do that is the day that you need to give up, not only for yourself, but for everybody else around you, because you're actually a danger to them. At that point. So, you know, that, that's, the, that's the thing about IndyCar racing. You know, I still say it's some of the best racing I've ever done. It's like doing Formula Ford 1600 at 200 miles an hour plus. And it's just great racing. The ovals are a unique thing, whether it be a mile, a mile and a half, a two mile or bigger. It, you know, they've all got their nuances and the differences. 
but it's not for the faint-hearted. It's, uh, there is no small accident on an oval. It doesn't happen. You know, and, if, and if you ever catch it and, and get a car corrected on an oval, then you know, thank the Lord, because uh, it won't happen the next time. Another scary Nissan that we've featured um, in our Monsters of Motorsport um, issue um, from your era driving for Nissan is the, is the Group A car, the uh, Skyline GTR, um, which dominated in um, touring car racing in Japan and Australia in the early 90s. Did you ever, uh, did you ever get to have a go in one of those? We did uh, in Phillip Island. And when we were doing some testing and Mark Scaife was uh, with us out there and we got to have a little run around in it. Um, but actually the funny thing about that, Marcus, was that when myself and Julian joined Nissan, there were two of these Skyline GTRs as road cars that had been imported from Japan given to us to drive us. And still to this day, still the most fun I've ever had in a road car on the road. I mean, the thing couldn't go straight. It, it was impossible. Um, it just went sideways at every opportunity, which we, you know, fell in love with because uh, there's a very good roundabout nearby where I live, and um, I've been round that so many times sideways. It's untrue, but um, those those cars back then were uh, cutting edge in terms of their performance, and 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 even to this day, I think you know you look back and you see that silhouette of a of a Skyline touring car, and it was something quite special. So um, yeah. And, and and I think the Aussies were fantastic when they used to go racing in them. I mean, I had a huge amount of respect for the guys over there and, and watching the uh, the supercar V8s. Yeah, still still great racing even today. Yeah, yeah. And and um, the, the latest addition to your management stable, Jake Hill. Um, of, of course, he's um, a, driven a couple of the Skylines, one of them setting a very quick lap at Goodwood in uh, Calsonic livery, so probably an ex-Hoshino car. So, um, yeah, they're, they're fantastic bits of kit, aren't they? I think I think Jake's got a love affair with, with a Nissan Skyline. I think he goes to bed with one by the sounds of it because he doesn't stop talking about them. He's, uh, he's so passionate about those uh, those Nissans. <laughs> I, uh, I did say to him that one day maybe we'll be, have, uh, be having an opportunity to jump on a plane and go to Nismo and go and visit the guys out there and see all of the cars in the museum. So, um, you know, maybe we'll make that happen sooner rather than later. Well, look, our front page of Autosport magazine uh, this week is Monsters of Motorsport. We're talking about the cars, not the drivers, I promise. Well, there's probably, <laughs> probably been a few. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for joining us for part one. Thanks a lot. Thank you, guys. Welcome back to part two of our Monsters of Motorsport podcast special. Now we've got a bunch of stuff to get through uh, in our second part. Uh, we'll start with the Brabham BMW F1 project that uh, Nelson PK won his title in 1983 with. I know uh, Gary will have a lot to say about this, but Marcus, we'll, we'll come to you first just for your memories on this. Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I really enjoyed putting this issue together and, um, and I, I especially enjoyed um, getting the material in from the people who wrote it. And, and obviously, Gary did a fair amount of that. But the, and he was the obvious person to write the, um, the Brabham BMW story. And, and I, I remember uh, being at the British Grand Prix in 1981 uh, with my dad and I was 14 years old in a... And it was free practice on the, uh, well, it would have been the Friday morning because I was going to say the Saturday because it was the second day of the meeting. But of course, in those days, um, Grand Prix at Silverstone were held on the Saturday. So, um, and um, out came this much quieter than usual Brabham, which uh, which had the BMW engine in it and, um, and Nelson Piquet at the wheel and uh, went very quickly 
in in that session. I mean, that was the that was the first iteration of the BT fifty, um, which would then be raced in nineteen eighty two, um, and uh, he actually set a time that would have put him in the same position on the grid, third, as he had with his conventional BT49 Cosworth-powered car, with which he went on to win the World Championship that year. So um, and I think I would imagine that Gary was probably at a <laughs> at the circuit as well, uh, watching the same thing <laughs> with his dad too. Given, from, uh, given uh, some of the conversations in the past, we were probably watching at the same corner because I know well, that, that we've, we both watched a lot of... Uh, of the Grand Prix themselves from, we both were, were, were club regulars. Although my memory of um, uh, the bit of 81 and seeing the turbo car, the turbo Brabham is actually watching it at cops for some reason. Yes. Well, well you were, you were probably, you were about a third of a mile from us. Cause we were, I, I can distinctly remember we were standing between Abbey and the woodcut chicane. So uh... <laughs> um, I, do, I always do wonder how close we came, uh, we came to yeah. each other, you know, sort of 15 years before we met or yeah and a little bit less than that and okay. and we also know that um warren hughes and his brother mark uh an all sport correspondent for a long time were also club regulars so i'd love to see a crowd picture and try and sort of circle us and see how close we were yeah i, I know i know mark and warren were definitely on the outside of club corner at the 1987 british grand prix because uh, i did have this conversation with mark and and we we were probably we could probably have seen each other from our respective vantage points but obviously i didn't get to know him until three years later when i uh, when i moved into motorsport journalism but yeah yeah the 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 brabham though that was yeah that that was the genesis of the project really wasn't it and and a really interesting one and um and gary you've spoken to um, some of the people involved in that, in in that, um, and it was, yeah, it was really a product of the times, wasn't it? It was a lot freer, and people, people were there was far more scope for for people to think outside the box, wasn't there? Exactly, and the and the um, the sort of underlying story of of Nelson Piquet's victory, the first with a championship victory, the first with a turbocharged. Uh, car in Formula One, as distinct from a supercharged car, of course, uh, was this magic fuel, a uh, magic designer fuel, a new special brew. It's been called Nazi rocket fuel, uncharitably and unfairly. But there's basically, you know, Paul Rocher, BMW's engine guru, a guy who, who was, you know, if you cut him in half, he'd have had BMW written right through him he he joined as a young engineer in 1957 uh and he worked there right into right into the current century you know he he had a hand in the very first uh bmw engine when they came back uh to formula one with, with williams i think he sort of designed the pre-engine and not the actual one that they began racing with uh, and they you know they had a detonation problem uh, with the engine they were looking for a, a solution they'd heard stories that some of the other manufacturers ferrari were using water injection uh, they experimented that and they came up with a conclusion that me as a non-engineer would also come up with that water doesn't burn Rocher uh, had apparently well he told me this story that he's, he's sadly dead now, now died in 2016 uh I think, but basically he'd heard about the sort of synthetic fuel used during the war, so made in Germany. Uh, 
And basically, they went looking for this technology, and it was made by a company that had been um, engulfed into the uh, BASF uh, chemical group. They tracked someone down, and basically, they came up with a special fuel, which had, which basically, it they sort of modified the fuel so that the bit, the fast burning stuff, was reduced, and those uh, the the slow burning stuff was increased it's all about you know uh hydrocarbons and stuff that is probably too boring uh for me to talk about even if i could uh understand it and basically they had this fuel and this was developed during the first half of 1983 but they kept it back because they thought well when we introduce it it's it's gonna that one of the engineers who was involved in it took, basically said we wanted to deploy it at match point. It's probably not quite right because they actually introduced it at the German Grand Prix. But basically, they they understood that if they introduced it early in the season, by the end of this season, everyone else would have it because you could just you know a se- secrets don't say se- secret for very long in Formula One, do they? So they actually introduced it at the. Um, uh, German Grand Prix and then you know for people like Marcus and I we were at um, uh, Brand Hatch for the European Grand Prix the hastily organized uh, European Grand Prix where where PK won he'd won previously at Monza uh, arguably should have won before that at Zandvoort I'm, I'm, I'm talking about these races in the wrong order here but but you, you get where I'm coming but basically from uh, Monza on um no no car other than a Brabham BMW. So either PK or his teammate uh, Ricardo Patrese led, led a lap in Formula One. And it and it and it changed and it turned the championship. It changed the game. And, and of course, um, Ricardo Patrese only led those laps in the final round of the season at Kyle Army because PK only needed to finish third, didn't he? So uh, so Patrese won the race and and PK did what he needed to. He did. I think we're. I think I'm going to say Patrese led some laps at Brands as well, didn't he? Ah, now that's. Um, I'm. I'm going to. You, you carry on talking. I'm going to check. Yeah, and that, yeah. that's interesting because, yeah. you know, PK. When we sort of look at the the sort of the greats of that era, you know, Prost sort of louder before him. Prost, you know, his his arch rival in '83 at Renault. You know, everyone sees as sort of PK's the playboy. Mm-hmm. Um, Prost is the professor. That's a, a very simplistic uh, view of it. And talking to people like Rosha and his <laughs> assistants, his yeah, his um, assistants. Basically, PK was fundamental in that program. He was the glue that held it together. He could see the writing on the wall mm. that the Cosworth needed to be replaced. And it was a very uh, fractious relationship in the early days between BMW and, um, and Brabham. If you remember with the BT 50, they, they went to the first race in um, South Africa. It was, it was a disaster. They, they went back to the Cosworth uh, BT 49. Then they went, back to the bt50 for zolder then it was they went on a half and half strategy and it was pk of course who stayed in the bt50 while patrese went back to the cosworth bt49 and you know pk absolutely believed in it and there are other tales of of the that winter when they were really struggling the the winter leading into the uh, 82 season where they were really struggling 
uh, with the BMW engine of sort of Patrese pounding around uh, uh, Paul Ricard setting new lap records sort of every every half hour and and PK concentrating on the BT50 and getting nowhere. But you know he he saw it as a good investment and uh, he was he was absolutely right, wasn't he? Yeah, and you and um, he was, and going back to Brands Hatch '83, you're, you're right. I've forgotten it was um, it was Patrese led the opening ten laps, and it was the battle with De Angelis with PK in in third place. Uh, and did De Angelis spin at thirties? Uh, Am I right I, in saying that? I, I think I think something something happened like that. Yeah, but it's it's gone from my memory. Uh, <laughs> 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 well, look, let's 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 move on. Uh, that, uh, that that engine would uh, would stick around almost to the end of the decade under uh, slightly different guys. But let's let's rewind to a race where neither of you can reminisce about being at the same race in 1937, when the uh, Mercedes uh, Benz W125, a 5.8 litre straight eight supercharged car now just tell us why this made the cut in the magazine and if someone picks up the mag this week what they're gonna what they're gonna see in there about this I- I- iconic car yeah it, it was um um yeah obviously uh slightly before we were with G- gary and i were both born slightly, uh, but, slightly, uh, just a little yeah. a little um, it... <laughs> <laughs> um my dad was minus six but, uh, but anyway. um yeah so um it was it was mercedes answer to the auto union um victory in the european championship in 1936 and and uh you know they they had to go they had to go a bit radical for 1937 uh we've um included in the magazine a cutaway drawing of the car um and um jake boxall leg um goes through the various aspects of the car that that made it turn turn things around um so so dramatically for them and uh obviously rudolf caracciolo was leading the team at the time um the as i say it's it's a it's a good story it's um it was an interesting car um it was it's an era of racing um uh, way way back way back then and what we wanted to do was uh get an element of pre-war heroic massive cars into there um into into the issue and um obviously those silver arrows of the 1930s encompassing both mercedes and auto union were were the ultimate um iteration of that i think what's amazing about that car okay it's 5.6 liters uh eight cylinders it's supercharged but it had i'm told you know a potential at least to have 600 horsepower you know how much it raced with uh i i i guess we can never can never be known you know so that's a grand prix car as distinct from a formula one car obviously starting um after after the war with the you know the start of the uh formula one world championship but obviously formula one predated that uh when did a formula one car surpass 600 horsepower in its power output i would say probably with the the, the a renault turbo on big boost in qualifying in 1978 not, yeah. not until then i i was i was actually going to go potentially to the early 80s I'm, i i wouldn't even be sure that the renaults were running 600 in the late 70s um but, uh, yeah yeah so yeah i mean they were 
Um, and and when you look at the uh, the the power outputs in the um, early sixties with the one and a half liter formula, I mean, you know, in, in comparison, those those pre-war machines were monsters, weren't they? Which is, which is, which is exactly what the issue was about. <laughs> Obviously, you know, we're thinking, you know, the first Formula One cars, you know, an Alpha 159, for example, mm. is, is a is a one and a half litre supercharged car. Then I yeah. suppose, the 250f is a two and a half liter you know so so obviously the, mm-hmm. the mercedes had a, a certain advantage in that it was 5.6 liters but uh, but anyway it's, it's an interesting point isn't it that we that uh, we're talking like 40 over 40 years before that uh, power was uh, exceeded mm. yeah yeah Absolutely. Well, look, let's let's move on. Let's kind of skip back a little bit, actually, to, and do some more sports cars stuff, because this issue is all about uh, some of the cars that were quite sublime. So we can talk about the Porsche 935, 917, um, Eagle Mark III, and, uh, and, and some in there that are quite ridiculous as well. Uh, Cannibal, Cadillac Spider. Um, Gary, what do, you, what do you want to pick up from this issue uh, as your highlights from sports car, Monsters of Motorsport? Well, I like to talk about the Cannibal. Because it's okay, a car okay. I, right, saw, right. I saw race, and I, I spoke to the uh, to the guy uh, who conceived the car. Conceived is probably overstretching it. We well, came up with the idea for it. <laughs> and basically, uh, a guy called uh, Bruce Trenery built. He didn't build it, but he came up with the idea with it. Sorry, he decided he wanted to do the new IMSA WSC class, which stood for World Sports Car. Uh, obviously, typically American not a it wasn't a worldwide class but they called it world sports car uh and that started in 1984 he turned up with this monster um hideous monster in 1985 and it was an old trans am car that he'd briefly raced in the gts class with a roof and he raced as a prototype without a roof because wsc was for open top uh cars rather rather than coupes and um what they came up with was the most ugly-looking car I reckon I've ever seen racing. It was it was horrendous, and a lot of people mocked it at the time. But um, but as as uh, its creator pointed out, that it it didn't cost a lot of money. Uh, it finished every race it did, and it still it raced into uh, uh, 1998. Uh, did did multiple Daytonas, a couple of Sebring's, finished every race it did so he reckons on sort of points per dollar he was ahead of everyone <laughs> but you should buy the magazine just to see how ugly this car is well i, I was gonna i was gonna say that uh, there's a little postscript to this and as as usual when when gary writes these features that uh are, are brilliant i mean he, he he specializes in these things where there's seven or eight different little stories that he touches on. Um, and quite frequently, it necessitates a, a trip to our archive to uh, to dig out obscure photos. And uh, and I knew I was going to struggle with this cannibal. Uh, so, so armed only with the knowledge of which races it had done and which number it was carrying, um, I was searching through uh, Daytona 24 hours. And, and bingo, found a picture of it, but it had... Um, damage to the front end and i thought well that just makes it even uglier so that'll do <laughs> it can't get any worse even if you stuff it into something gary but come on you know what is so bad about this car is it is it the bug eyes is it the weird hump in the middle of it what what's your issue with this vehicle 
looks terrible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, you've just given up on it. You're like, it's just awful. Just, even even its uh, its creator says he he basically got got someone to do it, someone to style it who'd been involved with the uh, the old Greenwood uh, Corvettes that raced in America and came to Le Mans in the in the, in the seventies. And he said the drawings on on paper it looked great, really nice drawings. But he he didn't see the car until till it turned up. Daytona because inevitably uh, as with so many new cars it was late and when they sort of took the took the um, the opened up the trailer and he saw the rear end of the car sticking out just burst out in laughter because you couldn't believe how ugly it was so but but I remember the first year I went to Daytona which was 1996 and can you remember Marcus if that picture is from 96 Uh, the picture I dug out was from 1995 Oh, was it okay? All I remember when I first went to Daytona, very different to the race was very different to how it, how it was now. And there were all these weird and wonderful machines. Uh, and I always remember a car ran round for a lot of the race without its bonnets, like the Cannibal. I think it was a similar tube frame type car, a GTS car, and it ran for I reckon half the race without its bonnet, so its front engine sticking out in the air. Another car, a coupe lost a bit of its roof well that had to pit to have a new bit of aluminium plate sort of riveted on somehow because the rule said you had to have a roof even though there are a lot of open top cars in the race but you could still run around without um, um a bonnet over your engine as we can see uh in the pages of all this week's so it just seemed it just seemed crazy to me but uh, the other thing is the 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 actually carried autosport stickers in in the mid 90s this um you can't see in the picture on autosport because i think the stickers are on the bit that's uh our sponsorship of the uh the, the the green and white liveried car that uh that lost its autosport sticker there was a couple there was some on the front and then there was one on the top as well all right well look let's move on we've got three more things to talk about really on our monsters of motorsport podcast let's talk Pike's Peak. I wouldn't say a specialist topic on Mastermind for either of you guys, but uh, let's let's talk a little bit about what's in the feature. Uh, where do you want to start? Yeah, I mean, we, we got David Evans, the uh, well-respected rally journalist, to write this, and and uh, it, as as you say, it's um, as far as I'm concerned, Pike's Peak was really something that passed me by um, in in my younger years as a motorsport fan and um and really it wasn't until the mid 1980s that uh, when audi went over that really um a european manufacturer went over plowed resources into it and and um and and did it properly and and um and i know that uh yeah it, that, it was a very prestigious event to audi to win and and then um peugeot followed in their footsteps and and uh, there was the very famous run by Ari Vatanen in 1988 in the 405, which was derived from the Group B rally machinery of the mid 80s, and and I I can remember uh, going to Le Mans at some point in the early 1990s. It wasn't for the 24 hours; it was for a Formula Renault event, and um, I went to the museum with a couple of people um, that that's at at the Le Mans, on the outside of the Le Mans circuit. Um, and in the museum, there was a video playing of Ari Vatanen's 
run up the uh, the mountain at Pikes Peak, and and we just stood there spellbound um, by it. Um, obviously, this is this is pre-internet days, so you couldn't just call stuff up on YouTube or anything like that. This was the first time any of us had seen this film, um, which uh, is now immortalised as Climb Dance, and and you can you can watch it uh, on video anytime, as I as I did recently, and and wow, I mean, you know, we, you get to the three minute point, and you can see. Vatanen hurling it completely sideways, worryingly close to the edge of the road, and it looks as though it's just oblivion beyond. And uh, and I, I suffer from a bit of vertigo, and I had to, <laughs> to lean back from the screen. <laughs> um, but yeah, and, and um, it's it's carried on, uh, and and David David's done a not, nice job of um, rounding up the uh, interesting projects over the years, and and the record has tumbled and tumbled and tumbled, um, helped considerably by the switch to asphalt from uh, from the dirt road that uh, for example Vattenham ran on in the late 80s and uh, and obviously um, most recently the Volkswagen IDR driven by Romain Dumas who had become a bit of a specialist of that event and um, and Gary that that's more in moving into your world isn't it with uh, with with that involvement yeah, Romain Dumas is a bit of a his, his to say as an all rounder is probably underplaying um, what he what he does because you know he he turns out on Pikes Peak he does a bit of rallying and of course he's won Le Mans twice he's he's still going to Le Mans he's a, he was at uh, Glickenhaus last year uh, but he just loves motor racing and he uh, you know he so, someone once joked that um, you know he's a Porsche factory driver has been for a, a long time that he um, he basically they liked having him as a factory driver because he basically gave them his salary back uh, in all the cars he bought you know he he's rallied them and uh, uh, yeah it's just he just I just he just loves doing different different things um, so it is it is um, yeah it's great that he went there and he, he won it you know his sort of own, own venture with Norma and obviously Norma sort of the, Applied the underpinnings of the uh, the Volkswagen IDR as well, obviously with uh, an electric um, powertrain. But sort of going back to the uh, Vatanen film Climb Dance, I think one of the most amazing things about that is 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 the surface because uh, I'm, I'm I think very small sections of it were were paved at that point because it got paved in a sort of piecemeal um, uh, way over the years, and I think that process started started much later. Uh, but it's just that you know the things he's doing. He's doing it on a on an unmade road with this uh, precarious drop on either, on one side, and 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 it, it is it is it's, it's spellbounding, isn't it? And it, it's also interesting that you know it was made without the sort of camera technology of today and the sort of tiny cameras that can be mounted on on every every surface of a racing car, you know. Uh, and yeah, it's. It is. It, it, I think you're right. It is uh, mm. um, spell spellbinding. It's, it's funny, isn't it? That I think in um, when we were growing up, Pikes Peak. It was something that was mentioned, but it didn't get a lot of lot of coverage, did it? Uh, because the world was a bigger place uh, in, the, in the late seventies and the and the eighties when we were sort of uh, when our interest in motor racing was uh, growing. Um, you know, I vaguely knew about the Unzer's um, um, role in the race. That in the, the Unzer family has won it umpteen times. I think it, beginning with uh, Louis Unzer before the war, and then 
Robbie, sorry, not Robbie, sorry, Bobby and Al, who were brothers and Louis's nephews, I think. Mm. Uh, Al Unser Jr. has won it and Robbie Unser has won it. So there's a, mm. an amazing connection uh, between the family. And let's not forget that Mario Andretti, Rick Mears, uh, they, they've won it as well. Yeah, it's one of those things that I think, you know, you need to discover uh, Pikes Peak much easier, of course, these days with the Internet. Uh, and you see cars like the IDR going up, it, which does look bonkers and crazy and extreme, as did the Peugeot 405 T16, a car uh, that can only be described as when somebody drew the rear wing, uh, the person standing next to them said, make it bigger, a bit bigger. A bit, go on, make, make it a bit bigger. Um, and of course, you know, back in the day as well, that would have had someone like uh, Jean Tot sitting in the. Well, there wasn't a passenger seat. No, it, um, it was a solo, solo run. So, uh, but uh, but he he would have been around at that time doing uh, doing things uh, in that in that circle. So yeah, so he would have been around and he would have been uh, around those cars and um, uh, and involved in the project. And and I think he would have jumped in as well and said. You know, show me, show me what this car's got. No passenger seat, of course, uh, in in these cars. Only only one seat. Um, we need to talk about a couple more things uh, before we wrap up the podcast. Uh, tell us who has uh, penned the next piece uh, for the magazine, which we highly recommend. If you see it uh, and uh, you're not a subscriber, you go and grab your copy for some fantastic pictures uh, of this. And let's talk Godzilla. So, who's written about the Nissan uh, GTR R32 for us? Yeah, that, that was a that was a Tom Howard production, and and Tom was the logical chap to do it because uh, he joined Autosport. Um, having spent a stint of several years down under in Australia, uh, which, um, not not during the era of Godzilla, I hasten to add. But, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure he was born. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure he's he's got plenty to say, as you guys will have about 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 Group A and about just bonkers monsters. Yeah, I mean, the, the, um, God, Godzilla is is of the Nissan Skyline GTR R32, which was. Um, developed for the 1990 Japanese Touring Car Championship. Um, and um, Kazuyoshi Hoshino um, would have been the guy who did most of the development work on that car because he was Mr. Nissan. And and if only I'd known we'd be doing this Monsters of Motorsport issue. Um, when I interviewed Hoshino in Japan a couple of years ago, I would have got some material for it. But uh, uh, he's, he's an absolute legend. But, um, but yeah, it was developed in Japan. Then... Uh, the, then taken to Australia, where the um, the Gibson Motorsport team uh, did a lot of rework on the car, uh, which was raced by Jim Richards and Mark Scaife. And um, Scaife is the guy who Tom has interviewed um, about it. He's still very much a part of the Australian touring car scene, and um, he uh, yeah, it's a it's a very very interesting story. Um, it is the ultimate. Group A car, I mean, the absolute phenomenal power, uh, complete sledgehammer to crack a nut by the time it it, it had finished, uh, and um, really only uh, apart from a, a couple of outings at the Spa Twenty Four Hours, one of which it won, it never really made a mark in Europe, and the reason for that is because Europe was switching over to uh, to the two litre regulations by the time Godzilla emerged um, and those two litre regulations were what eventually became super touring so so we never really saw that car at its peak our, our memories uh, you know gary and i our memories of, of the ultimate group a cars will be the sierra rs 500s of the of the late 80s uh, which just trickled over into 1990 when there was a two-class structure before it went strictly 
one class in the BPTC. <laughs> Let's not forget, Marcus, that w- w- we had to make do with a sort of production saloon version of the uh, Skyline, which, of course, Andy Middlehurst won a hell of a lot of races in the mid-90s, won two uh, production saloon championships. And it was... And, and- and also Matt Neal as well um, raced a skyline to a, to a Group N championship before launching himself into British touring cars. So, so. And for me, it's just a great looking car, mm. a great sounding car. Uh, yeah, if, if in my dream garage, I think there probably is a, a an R32 in there somewhere. Yeah, Pre- preferably in calsonic livery, I'd, I'd say. <laughs> well, if anyone's got one going spare, Gary will uh, find a home for it. <laughs> let's look let's come almost full circle and talk about once again a series and some races that you were both that you would have both been at in the mid 80s and let's talk thunder sports now lots of people will uh picture it in their mind if they can't uh you know remember those but based on those can-am cars uh the fu- last thing we'll talk about on our uh, monsters of motorsport special uh, what was so special well, this, about this- these cars this was something that I, I wanted in there. Uh, we, we wanted a, a national racing element, uh, the UK national racing element um, in, in our Monsters of Motorsport special. And, uh, and the, 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 default, uh, the default thought process is to think of super saloons, um, which were um, very popular in the mid-1970s. But that, that story has been told two or three times over the last 15, 20 years. And... Um, so, so my idea was to was to uh, look at the Can-Am cars that came over to Thunder Sports in the nineteen eighties, and um, which was a series which really was just to bring together whatever sports racing car could be found. But uh, and, and was really really good fun through the through the nineteen eighties, and, and we got uh, we asked Paul Lawrence to do it, who's um, veteran um club and national racing journalist and knows everybody and um and he's spoken to some of the figures involved in the can-am thunder sports era including ian flux and mike wilds who um both raced the burke ratcliffe racing lola t530 and also um also bill wickham who was in the the unusual frisbee um that uh, that appeared in the late 80s and um yeah I mean, it was just um, amazing to have these ground-shaking V8 Chevy-powered Can-Am monsters going around the British circuits, like Thruxton, for example. I mean, Thruxton was my local track, um, and uh, in the in 1987, um, the pole time was in the one-minute nines around Thruxton, and that and only the year before in. Interseri had been to Thruxton with Group C Porsches with Joe Gartner and James Weaver racing, and, and they were only a couple of seconds quicker. Yet these Can-Am cars were were older machinery um, and less uh, less advanced, obviously, than those Group C Porsches in Interseri, um, and it was just phenomenal. But then you think, well, hang on a minute, the American circuits that were being raced on were just as primitive and basic as uh, some of the British tracks, and. Um, and I know, uh, you know, going back to the uh, discussion about the Brabham BMW, Gary and I probably walked past each other uh, at Thunder Sports events at Brands Hatch on a few occasions uh, back in the 80s. That's absolutely right. It's an interesting you, 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 um, you say you use the word ground shaking because that was exactly John Webb 
the boss of the Browns Hatch Group of Circuits, MCD, Motor Circuit Developments, as it was called. Uh, that was exactly his philosophy and explains why um, we had a British Formula One championship for a few years, the Aurora Championship uh, from 78 through to 80, and why he briefly tried to bring... Well, he did bring it back unsccessfully so in 1982 uh it explains um thunder sports as well and and brian jones the great uh, brands hatch commentator who sad, sadly died um uh recently um basically said explained that yeah he believed that the earth should move for the spectators once or twice a year and uh and, and it also explains what the race of champions for example the non-championship race at, at brands he was very keen uh uh, to get Formula One cars to, um, to to Brands Hatch, and so basically he just sort of came up with a run what you run sports car championship. And the funny thing is, well, it wasn't a championship though, was it? That was that was the beauty of it as well. It was a it was a series, wasn't it? And they never awarded points. That's a good point. Yeah, I've completely yeah. forgotten that. Mm. But interestingly, the um, the Can-Am cars were a bit of a cheat, and the and it was John Forston with his Lola T five thirty. Uh, who who was there at the very first race at Brands Hatch in 1983, uh, and was a you know was a stalwart of the series, uh, became a stalwart of the series. That that of course is from the central seat Can-Am era. So forget about mm. McLaren uh, M8s and Porsche 917s <laughs> and 30s. So this is when Can-Am was reintroduced with rebodied Formula 5000 cars, essentially, and then you know the cars evolved. Uh, uh, over time so this was a single seater so was it a sports car well the wheels were covered but it wasn't a sports car in the sense that it had two seats and it did cause controversy at the time but i suspect that money talked and forston was a rich man of course he had a a, a big computer leasing company so i suspect uh and and of course went on to buy Brand. well uh, due, during the period when he was racing in thunder sports yes so uh, <laughs> uh, so you can understand probably how he snuck under the door and it actually took quite a few years for other people to come in you know i think is it right that the uh the burke radcliffe car didn't come until like 85 86 yeah it was um so um fulston fulston had a couple of lola t530s one of which was uh supposedly the 1980 patrick tombe title winning car and um uh and and raced that from the I, I, I don't think it was from the very first race, but from the, the early in the first year of Thunder Sport. Was he? Right. Okay. Yeah. He looked up the grid and, <laughs> and somewhere I've got a picture of it and I was there. And I'd just like to point out that Derek Bell was the winner of the first uh, Thunder Sports race. He he drove a uh, Porsche 908 free with Siggy Brun. It was Siggy Brun's car and they, and, and they won the race. And, and Derek put it on pole as well. <laughs> <laughs> and but yeah that's so um fulston um initially sharing with brian cox in the first season before john brindley became his usual driving partner but um but it wasn't until 86 when uh burke ratcliffe racing acquired a, a couple more t530s and then um and then over the next near over the next year um we had the the march 827 um which was bought by the italian driver Stingbrace. Um, otherwise known as Stefano Sebastiani, his real name. Gary, do you do you remember what Stingbrace actually stood for? Yes, um, he was a British-based uh, Italian. Worked in the hotel industry. He was manager of one of the big hotels. Uh, and why he didn't, 
I don't know if he really wanted to hide his um, his identity because of his sort of because he had quite a, a, a big job. I don't I don't know, but he uh, it, it it stood for Stefano in Great Britain race. Exactly, he was, but, he was Sting race. But but <laughs> I always thought that if you pronounced it as an Italian would Sting Bracci, it would, <laughs> it would, it would absolutely super That would be worth a second a lap, I reckon. I, I, I think so. Yeah, which, which he which he quite frequently lacked. Um, but, uh, uh, and, he wasn't and, uh, a bad peddler. Of course, he wasn't, he wasn't bad. No, um, he was a, about a second off the pace. But there were many other drivers in Thunder Sports who were upwards of five seconds off the pace. Yes. And don't forget um, that his son still races in this country in MSV Formula Three Cup. Really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, has done relatively yeah. recently. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't tell you in, if in yeah. the present mad world of the last couple of years whether he, <laughs> whether he has been racing, uh, but certainly uh, a few, certainly three or four years ago, he was racing here. Ah, but but there was also the March eight four seven, and a couple of years younger, which was um, in the Texas home pair livery, and uh, Richard Piper. Was the was the guy he raced that most of the time with with usually Tiffany Dell as his his co-driver and and I always that was always my favourite car I thought that was the best looking Can-Am car in front of Well, that's interestingly because that car was made by uh, an operation that was known as RK Racing, of which Bob Fernley subsequently um, of Force India and various other Formula One teams and. Um, I think now at the FIA is well, that he's, right? he's now president of the FIA Single Seater Commission. Yeah. Yes, exactly. He he was uh, very much behind that project, and they, and they were made out of old Indy cars, the uh, eighty two March Indy car. Well, let's let's hope that the future of single seater racing looks like single seat Can-Am cars. <laughs> <laughs> and on that bombshell, I think a good a good place to end um, the podcast. A bunch of cars discussed uh, today that, uh, if this word translates to our international listeners, can all be described as a bit hairy. And uh, hopefully, uh, if you haven't got the chance to pick up the magazine. Obviously, we're trying to do them justice on the podcast today. And of course, you can go online and there's digital editions and and you can look at stuff online, of course. But uh, hey, I just love to sit down uh, when I get five minutes to myself with a, a magazine uh, and just uh, some of the pictures we've put in this uh, this week's edition are absolutely stunning. So if you can, go and pick yours up. If you're not already a subscriber, uh, go and uh, take a look at those because they are some uh, some fantastic images that uh, our team have pulled together. Thank you very much for listening uh, to another edition of the Autosport Podcast, and we'll see you on the next one. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Sports Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.